everybody, and welcome to North Coast Chronicles, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Prohl. Join me once a month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network as I share the history, geography, culture, and adventures associated with the extraordinary Great Lakes resource and region. Today, our show is called The Heart of Man, Grape Growing and Winemaking in the Great Lakes. Lest you think that the only good wines are from California, stick around to hear how the Great Lakes region is much more than a mouse that roars when it comes to a long history of grape growing and producing amazing wines to suit every palate. Joining us is Miss Lori Hathaway, an award-winning author and co-author of the History of Michigan Wines. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Helen. Also with us is Ed Heineman and his son Dustin of Heineman's Winery on South Bass Island, Ohio, the oldest family-operated winery in Ohio. Ed and Dustin, thanks for taking time during your busy season to join the podcast. No problem. And as always, with us is our trusty engineer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Helen. Uh, first, you know, I want to give you and your partner, Peter Ravella, and the American Shoreline Podcast Network a big shout out for having just been selected to receive the 2021 Hooterham Media and Communications Award for the American Shore and Beach Preservation Associations. Congratulations. Uh, you're making me blush. Thank you very much, Helen. Well, you've only been at this three years and already you're getting awards, so I think it says a lot. And uh, ASPN has an incredible catalog of coastal resource-related podcasts, so it's really no wonder you were selected for the award. Well, it's truly an honor, Helen, and uh, thank you for mentioning it. Well, uh, I'm, I'm just really honored to be with the Podcast Network. But I uh, also want to brag a bit on the last North Coast Chronicles podcast, which was called Where the Boats Go. Seems we had a huge listenership, if I say it that way. I was blown away by the interview with retired Great Lakes freighter captain and my brother, Russ Brohl. And after 30 years of sailing on the lakes, I figured he knew his stuff, but I was really impressed. What did you think? I was absolutely blown away. I had never really considered just what it would be like to be captaining those big ships in a storm. And hearing about it from your brother's perspective was absolutely cool. It was very cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, you know, I think the podcast started a Captain Russ fan club. You and I received an email from another ASPN host, Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet. And Tim is a retired Navy, uh, is retired Navy, and he commanded a few ships of his own. He's also immediate past deputy administrator of NOAA. And Admiral Gallaudet wrote to us and Tyler and Peter and said, this was such a delightful show. I did not want it to end. Please tell Captain Russ, bravo Zulu. And I hope to meet him someday. Of all the wonderful content, his initial response to what kind of captain were you really resonated with me and my leadership philosophy. He said, I just tried to treat people the way I would want to be treated. Over my entire career, I know the golden rule to be the best approach to leadership bar none. What a great guy. What a great pair of hosts and what a great show. Uh, That was just the sweetest thing. And then I also received a text from Jay from Windward Strategies who thought the subject was so interesting that he hoped there was an opportunity to have a beer with Captain Russ to learn more about Great Lakes Lakers. So I thought that was sweet. But um, the feedback I've been getting from friends, family, colleagues, just people I don't even know has been incredible. How about you? Oh, Helen, it was definitely one of the most popular shows on the network when it came out immediately. And you know what? Huge smashing success on ASPN. Yeah, it was fun. So I encourage listeners to go to ASPN on Apple, Spotify, or other outlets to hear where the boats go. Today's sponsor is Heinemann's Winery on South Bass Island, Ohio, producers of fine wines since 1888. Heinemann's grow their own grapes, ensuring the highest vine-to-wine quality. To visit Heinemann's Winery or to order wine now shipped to 37 states, go to Heinemann'sWinery.com. For those of you who followed North Coast Chronicles, you'll know that I spent a good deal of my youth on an island like Erie called Middle Bass Island. On the island, there were two wineries when I was growing up, Lance Winery and Bretz's Winery. Both grew their own grapes to make wine, but they were very different producers. Bretz's Winery was a small family operation. You would drive around the back of their house, which was surrounded by vineyard, and knock on the door of a small back porch, which acted as their office. And I recall you could buy about five different wines, like Concord or Sauterne. Each bottle, I think, cost about $2.25. And if I remember correctly, some of the vines from their orchard were from the 1800s and brought to Ohio from Germany, and likely from a wine-making region similar to where the Heinemann family originated, and we'll hear more about their story shortly. Now, the other winery, Lance's Winery, was a whole different operation. 
They produced larger quantities of wine as well as types of wine. What was particularly different because it had a large public building that was built to look like a castle where people sat on a porch overlooking the lake. It also had adjacent picnic area where people laid out their blanket to drink wine. Now, we lived very near Lance's Winery and experienced pretty crazy weekend crowds where people drink sometimes too much wine. Couples would walk out on our dock in front of our house and they would make out. So you know, my father would have to go shoo them away. A few people would try to swim the two miles across the lake to Putin Bay, the nearest island, and some didn't make it, if you know what I mean. But they also left coins that fell out of their pockets on the lawn, and we would search for them on Sunday mornings. And if we found a whole dollar, it felt like we were rich. Now, on the porch of Lance's winery was a Greek-like fresco with the saying from Psalm 104.15, And wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Now, that saying seemed magical to me, and I would read it over and over as a youngster, trying to understand the depth of its meaning. Now, today, I would agree that the wine maketh glad the heart of men and women. Locally grown grapes across the nation represent over $5 billion in revenue, making them the highest value fruit crop in the United States. Obviously, not all of these grapes are used for wine production. And more obviously, the number one wine producing state is California, accounting for 85% of all wine production. But I wouldn't exactly consider the grape growing and winemakers in the Great Lakes the little guys, because there's still a lot of grape growing being grown, grapes being grown and even more wineries. While not all of the wineries are directly along the Great Lakes, there are over 800 wineries in Great Lakes states. The number of wineries has exploded. In Minnesota, for example, there were three wineries just five years ago, and today there are 40. Lori Hathaway is the co-author of a book entitled The History of Michigan Wines and Its 150-Year History. Hi, Lori. Hi, Helen. Lori, you wrote a history of winemaking in Michigan with uh, Sharon Kagaris, who incidentally helped me uh, track you down. Well, what possessed you both? <laughs> yeah, it, it took me a while, but we finally got a hold of you, and I'm so grateful you're here. What possessed you to both write about the history of winemaking in the region? So um, we were together downstate. Um, we had a we were both in corporate jobs. had a had a networking group that met together once a week, and and uh, Sharon and I met through that. And we decided to start this writing club, and we were the only two that joined. <laughs> so um, so we started we we started learning about Michigan wines, and at the time there weren't books written about Michigan wines, and we were kind of shocked ourselves that there was all these like great wineries in Michigan that we you know so we started exploring. And from that point, we actually decided to write a guidebook. And we went to our very first publisher, and they're like, we want a coffee table book. And if you don't do it with us, we're finding some other people. <laughs> so, you know, we didn't have the experience that some authors do where they go searching for publishers. We got lucky right away. Um, and then from there, the Department of Agriculture hired us to document the state's history with uh, kind of like high school report. Um, high school reports on different topics. And while doing that, we discovered most people think that Michigan wine, the Michigan wine industry started much later, but it actually started in the mid 1800s. And we were for, or I'm sorry, the 1800s. Um, yeah, the 1800s. And we were third in the nation behind California and New York before prohibition and also for the three decades after prohibition. We were producing a lot more wine then even than now. So it, the history itself was just so exciting that we wanted to turn that into a book. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. I, I've seen a couple of books on the like a, a, a winery directory, but nothing else other than your book on the history. So, you know, um, I also was reading up and William Penn brought grape vines to the Philadelphia region in the 1600s. And I think every county in Pennsylvania grows grapes, but winemaking around the Great Lakes, as you said, really started about 200 years later. So tell us a little bit more about that. So the, the very first vines that were planted in Michigan were by Joseph Sterling in 1863. Um, he actually planted them in Monroe. He was some of the, you know, the French settlers that came here. And, and, and actually, let me backtrack for a second. There was actually the first vines they know ever planted in Michigan was 1702 in Fort Pontchartrain, which later became Fort Detroit. And um, they used to make the wine and trade for furs and things like that. And uh, so there was actually, you know, a vineyard inside the fort. But then later in 1863 is when Sterling um, 
And not only did he plant vines in Monroe, he also opened a tasting room. So, you know, wine tasting goes way back since wine existed, really. And uh, that building still exists today. So when they sold it at some point, uh, Prohibition showed up and sounds like his daughters and other family members were uh, totally for Prohibition. And they dumped all his wine down the river. <laughs> so like, that just like hurts me. <laughs> but that stuff, you know, it just it hurts. But um, so when they sold their tasting room, they said that the structure had to always remain. So Sharon and I actually found it's it's a summer home now, um, and it's really cool how they kept the structure, but like kind of built the summer home around it. <laughs> so um, it, it's really neat. But yeah, so he st- he started it. So I guess um, if he dumped all the, they dumped the wine in the river, that's what made the river rouge? <laughs> Probably. Well, well, that's good. <laughs> that's an inside joke, folks, because the river rouge is near Detroit. And Monroe, Michigan is uh, on the western end of Lake Erie, just north of the Ohio border. And uh, for you for you uh, shipping folks, it's got a nice little port there as well. So um, uh, tell us where John Sterling was from. Any sense of where he was from and how he got himself to Michigan? Um, you know, I don't know that where he he came from. Um, he, I just know he was a French settler. He, I know he had two wives. First one sounded like she died very young. We actually went searching for his grave. We did not find it, but we did find his first wife and all his children. Um, so he just made his way here, and you know, over, over in Europe prior, I mean, even now, I mean, it's it's normal for all families to make wine. That's a very normal thing. So. You know, he just grew up in a family that they made wine for their dinner table, and I assume, and came here and um, decided to plant some grapes. Well, the area is known for having a lake effect, and let me let me go to Ed Heineman of Heineman Wineries. Thanks, guys, for being here. I I mentioned at the beginning that you have the oldest family operated winery in Ohio, but isn't it one of the oldest operating in the Great Lakes too? Uh, yes, I do believe so. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised because um, there you know, a lot of wine, wineries have popped up, but none of them have your history. So why I, I'm jumping a little bit to the resource side of this. Why do you think um, wine or, or grapes grow so well uh, in the northern Ohio, that whole Lake Erie, Lake Michigan area? Well, the main reason is uh, the lake effect that we have. Uh, Lake Erie is the shallowest of the Great Lakes. Uh, it uh, heats up very quickly in the spring and summer. Right now it's probably around 80 degrees. And that keeps the surrounding air temperature uh, very warm. Uh, our average killing frost is until around mid-November. And I've seen it well into December. You know, you have uh, tomatoes still flowering and uh, geraniums blooming, and uh, yeah, it's kind of unusual. But yeah, we're surrounded by Lake Erie, and uh, we have that lake effect. Uh, and uh, the soil, uh, I know Put Bay is uh, a lot of a lot of clay soil, and you know, we recently took over North Bass Island. Isle St. George uh, from uh, Firelands Winery about, what, three, four years ago? Um, and they, you know, they have more of a sandy soil over there. So, uh, you know, you can grow grapes in a lot of soil, but I think the main thing is uh, the lake effect. Uh, we have a very, very long growing season, so uh, the grapes can hang on the vine very long and uh, ripen. Catawba is a late ripening grape. We usually don't pick those till late October, early November. Mm, that late in the season. So, um, Ed uh, and Dustin, you are like the, what, the fourth and fifth generation of Heinemans um, who are running the um, the winery. Tell us a little bit about the ancestor that started this all and like what timeline was this? Well, we were established in 1888 by Gustav Heinemann. And he was my great great grandfather, and he came uh, from the which region? Oh, it's from uh, uh, back then. It was a region around uh, where Freiburg is now, uh, the southwest corner of Germany. You know where you, it's pretty close to France and uh, 
Switzerland down yeah, there. Yeah, the, well, yeah. that region, you know, Freiburg area. Um, I came from a small town, I think south of Freiburg, called Ehrenstedten. Yeah, I was over there uh, 1981 and uh, went to the church where Gustav was baptized and a lot of Heinemann's in the cemetery up there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he came from uh, that area. I, think, I guess everybody was uh, looking for uh, a place where the, the grass was always greener. Uh, there might have been a lot of uh, things going on in that area back then. Uh but uh, yeah, he came uh, came to this area. This whole area, um, northern Ohio, was uh, a German settlement. So you had a lot of Germans from you know, Toledo all the way to the other end of Cleveland and you know Pennsylvania. So a lot of Germans settled in this area, and they they grew grapes and made wine like they did in uh, the. Uh, yeah, where they came from. So was Gustav a, a winemaker, a vintner in Germany as well? Uh, I would assume he was. He, uh, I, When I went back there in 81, a lot of my family members were, were winemakers and grape growers in that same area. A uh, cousin of mine was a, a winemaker. Uh, and then uh, his father was a grape grower and he also made schnapps, uh, grape schnapps, plum schnapps, apple schnapps. I spent a day with them making schnapps. It was like an all-day process to make a five-gallon bucket of schnapps. But, uh, yeah, I would assume that uh, they all grew grapes and made wine over there. Yeah, he, um, well, he actually, I, I believe, came to this area around 1880, and he actually... First, I believe, started working at the Golden Eagle Wine Cellar, which was on Middle Bass, actually, where Lons is today. So he, you know, he, he must have known what he was doing before he got here. Yeah. Yeah, Golden Eagle, that, uh, did that burn down? And then... I, th- I think it did. It either burned down or they... And then... Uh, tore it down. Then uh, George's father, I think Peter... Might have rebuilt it. Um, but yeah, he, Gustav did come over here in 80, and then he worked over there, and then went back to Germany, and then came back here around 1888 and started a, <clears throat> our winery here. So what I want to know, though, is that when you were making schnapps, did you get to drink schnapps? And which one was you th- the best tasting, did you think? Um, uh, the grape schnapps. Grape schnapps. I've never had grape schnapps. Are you guys making grape schnapps? Uh, no. Uh, but we're, <laughs> we're, um, I don't know if I should, yeah, I don't want to say anything right now. We got some <laughs> things in the works around. You're all right. You don't want to give any trade secrets away. I understand. But if you do produ- start producing the schnapps, you put me down for a case. I remember that you went to Ohio State University for viticulture. So what do you think you learned from school that you didn't get from growing up in the family business? Well, I uh, learned how to be around a lot more people. I graduated from Putin Bay High School. We had the largest class that ever graduated, 14. And uh, that included my twin sister. Uh and that was the largest class that ever graduated. We were, you know, part of the baby boomers and uh, a lot of good Catholics uh, at that time. But then um, going to Ohio State where you were sitting in a auditorium, you know, with hundreds of people, but um, you know, uh, wasn't used to that. But, yeah. uh, most of our classes were small, but I, I was in the uh, Department of Ag, so we uh, I was uh, in uh, a major in food technology, horticulture, and minor in enology, which is the the science of winemaking. But we only had a few people in our class, and uh, I learned quite a bit there. But most of what I learned was uh, going to uh, seminars, conventions, and uh, hands-on experience. 
Yeah, well, a, a long history of hands-on experience for sure. Did you feel pressure to be in the family business or was it just kind of something that came natural to you? And I guess a question for you too, Dustin. I mean, both of you are following in the family business. Is that something, um, is and winemaking is awfully special. I think it makes you uh, interesting. You have an ex- incredibly unique life and lifestyle. Um, you know, is it is it, did, was it natural for you? Did you, or did you kind of have to learn to want to be in the business and grow to love it? No, I uh, I think I knew all along this is what I wanted to do. I remember when I graduated from Ohio State and probably became winemaker right after that. Uh, my dad said, I'm going to teach you everything in the business, so uh, someday you'll, you'll take over, you know. Well, that's a, that was a really lovely thing to learn from your dad. Now, Dustin, this is a loaded question. How is it working for your dad in a family business? And what do you think about the art of winemaking? Um, it is, it's definitely, uh, I mean, it, it's not easy. There's a lot, to, a lot goes into winemaking. You know, a lot of chemistry. You got to make sure you get everything right. But, you know, back, back to the question about the, you know, the, the business and, and, and how I feel, you know, when I was younger, I was always obsessed with money and how to make money. I mean, I had, a, a, I believe, a cash register in my bedroom when I was, I don't remember, eight, maybe eight or nine. And, um, you know, the story was that the, the winery here, you know, which Louis then, my grandfather, got new cash registers. And, you know, I kind of wanted one of those things and he, he didn't, uh, he didn't end up giving me one. So I went and bought my own, but I've always been in, into the business aspect of it more than the winemaking, but you know, it's, there's just so much to it. Yeah. yeah. Dustin, uh, it's probably more like my dad, uh, more of a businessman. I mean, ever since he was three, four years old or so, he was, very easy to shop for uh, on his birthday and Christmas because all I had to do was go to Office Max or Staples and get some uh, office supplies, you know, because he would sit at his desk and answer, you know, uh, take orders, fake answer the phone <laughs> and yes, what would you like? Well, six bottles of Pinkataba and six bottles of this and make a receipt and uh you know so he was just obsessed with business you know and he would pick up um clean clean tables in our wine garden uh when he was three four five years old and and rake rake in the tips you know and now eli does it uh, my yeah. grandson eli he's eight years old now so he goes out there does the same thing uh, there we go. My daughter, the- my daughter Ava, she's she goes, she works a little bit, but she's so busy with sports and uh, sailing, uh, she doesn't work too much. She did work uh, Saturday though, but she's fourteen, and she she said she never makes tips. I, I said you're getting too old for that, you know. Yeah, you got to be like three or four <laughs> years old to find yeah. you. Well, the, you know, the, the having a family business is just extraordinary, and um, you've certainly come a long way since 1888. Uh, Lori, um, in your book, you talked about some of the native grapes that were first used when people came to the area. What were those native grapes? And then how did that kind of evolve? Well, the native grapes, yeah, I mean, that's what was planted here. It's what they found along the riverside, um, you know, when they, when they planted the vines in Fort Pontchartrain. Um, but the one thing that we had in Michigan that I think other regions did not was we actually had Welch's had a, they had a lot of plantings here. So, you know, the Concord and, and things like that, things that are made for jelly. I you know, those grapes thrive here. And um, it took a long time to figure out that we can also do the European viniferas. Even that beyond the French American hybrids. Well, what is, okay, so it kind of lost me, um, with French American hybrid. So some of the native grapes in, uh, are Concord, obviously. Concord, Niagara. Concord, Niagara is uh, Catawba. Is that a native? Catawba, you guys might know better than I. Is Catawba a French American hybrid or is that a native? That, uh, that's a Native, native. American. 
That's a native. Okay. So a, a Concord, you know, makes grape jelly, obviously, that we're everybody's familiar with. Um, and it makes a Concord wine, which is kind of looks like the color of Concord grapes. Um, and then um, um, I'm familiar with Catawba grapes because they kind of make, they're, they're more yellowy white, make a white wine, I guess. But, um, you know, Concord, Concord grapes are also very popular for grape juice. So let's, let's talk a little bit about prohibition because uh, you talked about a little bit, Lori, that a lot of wineries and including Heinemann's and Lance's and others in Northern Ohio were kind of going gangbusters. And then when prohibition hit, a lot of them went out of business. So how is it, Lori, that some survived in your area of Michigan? And then I'm going to ask uh, um, the same question of Ed and Dustin and how uh, Heinemann's kind of made it through prohibition. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, Detroiters didn't really, we didn't, I don't think we acted like prohibition existed, <laughs> you know, so that we've always been kind of rebels from Detroit. But um, the during prohibition, 85% of illegal contraband coming into the U.S. was coming across the Detroit River because the Detroit River, was, it, it's so um, narrow compared to like coming across a sea or ocean. You could get across quickly. And they also had, um, I mean, there's a lot of people in on it. They had, they had programs where they had, you know, they had pulleys going underneath the water or, you know, the Detroit River freezes over. You could drive across it. They had like certain days, like Tuesdays and Thursdays from three to six, all the, the officers and stuff looked the other way. And so it really never, people didn't stop drinking in, in, in Detroit or Michigan. And um, the wineries basically just moved over to, you know, across the river to Canada where it was legal. So when prohibition ended, I think one of the reasons that Michigan took off, so, and a lot of people don't think of us as being that young, but we were, one of the reasons that we took off so strongly is that we had we had the grapes already here because we had Welch's. We had wineries that are already in business that just moved across the river once Prohibition lifted. And we also had the sugar. So we had everything that the wineries needed. And um, it just made sense for that industry to start booming again, which it did. But a lot of them did not. So a lot of them did failed. Um, so how is it to Ed, Dustin, Heinemann's winery went through the same thing? How did they survive? Because I understand there are a, a boatload of wineries on the island before Prohibition. And then afterwards, not so many, but you guys were still standing. So what did you do differently? Well, there, there, yeah, there actually used to be, I think, 17 wineries over here at one time. But, um, you Around know, 1900. Yeah. But, well, back in 1897, while Gustav and his uh, workers were digging a second well for the winery here, they actually discovered uh, Crystal Cave. And that is um, one of the major reasons that we survived Prohibition because we were able to give tours of, you know, this beautiful geode. And um, I think they also sold some of it as well. But he, um, that we also had a taxi service called the Yellow Ribbon Taxi Company, I think. And they would give... Uh, you know, rides from downtown Putin Bay to here to tour not only Crystal Cave, but we also own Mammoth Cave, another large cave at the time. Well, you know, yeah, the er the area certainly was carved by glaciers, uh, and the uh, rock is really, really hard. Um, I think limestone, some of the calcium is replaced by magnesium or something. I might have that wrong. But uh, as a result, that stone and that bedrock is very hard. But what's interesting to learn is that there's a lot of caves on the island. And I believe some of those caves were used during the Civil War to house um, uh, uh, Southern prisoners. But um, I just want to highlight that, uh, that's, that because you had what you call Crystal Cave, and and I'm not sure if you heard it, but... A geode is like when you crack open a geode, it's like this crystal inside. And what you have is a giant geode crystal and covered um, cave. And it is, I think it's the largest like geode in the world that's known about. And you can actually take a tour in it. So it's interesting that um, what saved you really was the tourism aspect of your business. But what about um, grape juice? Did you sell grape juice as well? Yeah, we sold a lot of grape juice. Uh with instructions how to make wine, but I think everybody knew how to make wine. You know, they're all Germans around there. So, uh, 
also that in uh, medicinal wines and sacramental wines and uh, of course uh, like uh, I think uh, Lori was talking about a lot of uh, bootlegging going on yeah. around here you know a lot of a lot of the islanders had faster boats than the revenuers. I think that's what they were called back then. Absolutely. So, well, it um, yeah. So it's it's interesting that because I don't think people realize that you could sell uh, that you could make your own homemade wine, and as a result, people bought your grape juice. Um, but let me let me just mention that today you can buy just plain grape juice. And it's so delicious. It is, um, it is almost wine-like in its flavor. It's a little less sweet than what you would get from, you know, Welch's grape juice uh, in the grocery store. But it's so delicious. As a child, I would pretend that I was drinking real wine when I had grape juice. It's so silly to think about it now, but it felt so sophisticated. So I highly recommend it um, if you do like juices and don't want to have the alcohol. It's as close as you can get to the perfection of wine without, you know, I mean, real wine, fresh tasting grapes. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the types of grapes. Now, <clears throat> I've heard about a Labrusca grape. Um, Ed, what is a Labrusca grape? Labrusca. Labrusca. Thank you. What is that? Uh, Vitus Labrusca. That's the, the Native American grape. Vitus is the genus of Labrusca the species. That's a, a Native American grape. Your your uh, European varieties are Vitus vinifero grapes. Then you have your French American hybrids, which are cross 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 between uh, your Native American grapes and your Euro European varieties. Those are you know they're, ex they're uh, you know coming out with new varieties all the time. And in fact, the uh, University of Minnesota has recently came out with. Uh, several cold hardy varieties uh, that can withstand 10, 20, 30, 40 below zero. So I know a lot of grape growers in Ohio that are starting to grow those grapes. Uh, some of those are called the uh, Marquette, uh, uh, La Crescent, and uh, Frontenac. Those are the three that I know of the, the best. I, I always think of, uh, I think that... Um Great Lakes wines tend to be classified unfairly as just very sweet wines, and certainly there are some sweet wines. Um, but, Lori, speaking for just like what you understand Great Lakes wide, what do you understand is probably the most popular wine? Or is that an unfair question because they've just evolved so much? Well, I, I think there's a lot to answer that question, but I would like to backtrack to Prohibition just for a second because I think that we were Michigan was a lot different than Ohio because Ohio had many wineries before Prohibition, and we did not. And after Prohibition, that's when they all opened up. So we actually didn't lose wineries after Prohibition. It was much later, and this goes toward your question about the sweetness. Um, you know, in the first few decades after Prohibition, the customer preference was sweeter wines. You know, that's what people drank, like the Mad Dog, and they had like this. I mean, that's just you know. And then as the servicemen were coming back from World War II and they were experiencing dry wines like in France and, you know, it, these other places where they produce drier wines, um, as well as, uh, um, oh my gosh, what's her first name? Childs, the, she's the, she was the chef who Julia wine at Julia Childs, right? Julia. She also, you know, had her things going on where she was, you know, talking about these dry wines. So, Basically, the preferences started to change toward the dry wines and um, regions like California, who are a little bit more sophisticated than Michigan, they were able to just rip out all their, because it's not producing a wine a different way, it's, it's putting different grapes in. So they were able to pull out all their vines and put the new ones in. Michigan winemakers would get together and once a month to talk about what they should do and they would drink wine and pretty soon they, they just, you know, they just reacted too slow. And a lot of them went out of business. Um, one of the reasons I think Michigan gets a little bit of a bad rep for having sweet wines is that um, St. Julian is so big and they are on the border. They are our oldest winery, but they're so big and on the border and more accessible to people. They produce a lot of sweet wines because that's what the consumer wanted, that they're kind of consumer who's driving by and going in to get 
getting some sweet wines. Now they produce everything. And um, so, you know, I think it gets a bad rep from that. I also think there's a lot of um, consumer misconception. Like, for example, I love, re- I don't drink sweet wines. I love Riesling. And up here in Northern Michigan, it's hard to find a sweet Riesling. Honestly, you know, everybody, Rieslings can be produced from sweet to dry. And not a lot of great varietals can do that, but Riesling can. Um, so people hear Riesling, they're like, oh, I don't want to even taste it. I don't do sweet wines. It's like, well, this is dry, <laughs> you know? So I think that's some of it too. And um, it, it's also about, it, it's not about can we grow, you know, can we grow grapes well here or Ohio? I'm sure it's the same. It's what kind of grapes we can grow well here. That That's the difference. So we do really well with Riesling, Chardonnay, um, Pinot. I think we have some of the best Pinot Noirs. In, in the country. Um, but you, you try some other ones, like, you know, just some other varieties, like there's some deeper reds. The, seas, the growing season is not long enough to get those grapes to ripen to where they need to be. So it's not so much, can we grow? It's what can we grow? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And even though you have a longer, uh, an extended growing season, uh, it's not quite the same. Certainly you get further north, that's less of an impact. So, um, lakes wide um would you say that at this point i mean there's so many wineries that have popped up but a lot of these wineries do not grow their own grapes and so for those that do not grow their own grapes are they just buying it from other grape growers so there are there is there a whole uh industry of just grape growers who don't make wine and then a whole industry there's certainly an industry of wineries that don't grow grapes but make wine um, and then you've got companies like Heinemann's who does both. So lakes wide, are you finding that there's just, you know, a lot of these winers that popped up, how are they getting, are most of them growing grapes or most of them buying the wine, the, 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 the juice somewhere? Well, I'm not sure how it is in the other states, but in Michigan, to be recognized as a winery, they have to be producing more than 50% of their wine from Michigan grapes. Um, so, and I think sometimes, and, and I'm sure, that Ed and Dustin would have a different thought process that I do because I'm not a winemaker owner. Um, but I, I feel like the industry sometimes gets caught up in like how the vineyards are owned. And, and for me, and, and just to give a little background, I'm a, I'm a commercial real estate broker from my past. But to me, if, if, a, if a winery has vineyards owned or leased, I don't know why that's such a difference um, because it's just a different kind of uh, control of those vineyards. You know, it's just it's just a different way of paying for it, I guess. So, um, but in Michigan, you do have to have fifty percent. I we don't see a lot of wineries here that aren't growing their own. They might be growing their own, but they're doing you know they might be doing both. We have some really big producers, um, especially up in uh, Traverse City and Leelanau Peninsula, that they're just such big producers that they can't possibly grow enough grapes to produce everything they do by their own grapes. So, um, you know, for that reason, they have to bring in juice sometimes or buy grapes from others. So, um, Ed and Dustin, <clears throat> how much of the wine uh, you produce is from your own grapes? Well, <clears throat> I would say uh, probably right now uh, 50%. Like I said, that's going to okay. be more because uh, we, we recently took over North Bass Island from uh, from Firelands Winery, and uh, there's 40-some acres up there that we're taking care of, and we have about 40-some 40, 40 on Putin Bay. But once uh, once uh, North Bass gets rolling, we'll you know, be producing a, a lot more grapes for our needs. But right now we do have to, to purchase uh, grapes from uh, growers, but uh, we get them all from the, the Lake Erie region. You know, like my buddy up in Avon. Uh, that's your neck of the woods, Helen. Uh, you know, Klingshern up there. Lee. Yeah, I do. And uh, Northeast Ohio, you know, there's a lot of wineries and uh, grape growers up there. So we, we get them all from the, the Lake Erie region. But we're trying to, okay. you know, uh, with North Bass... Right now, we're, uh, uh, North Bass has been kind of a problem, uh, you know, getting the equipment up there, you know, and Firelands 
bowed out. They, they took everything that wasn't nailed down, I think, you know, all their equipment and everything. So just uh, getting all your uh, tractors up there and, uh, and uh, all sure. the, uh, the vineyard equipment and, uh, you know, the getting up there is a problem. Yeah, there's not like regular ferry boat service. Uh, I mean, it's it's only semi-regular. So so uh, Middle Bass, where I'm from, when I was growing up, there were vineyards all over the place. And in late summer, the smell of Concord grapes was the most wonderful thing in the world. But there are no vineyards really there anymore. North Bass Island, which is just north of us, um, was nothing but grape growing. And it's uh, not a lot of people live there. So when, when you took it over, the the vineyards themselves needed to be fixed. I mean, this is all special equipment. I get it. Um, special equipment to pick it, special equipment to, to manage it. Um, so I can imagine that that's um, a lot to do. But um, when do you think that, that those uh, grapes will kind of come into where you can really use them? Uh, well, well, last year we got um, a couple of varieties off of there. And, but uh, this year we're hoping for a couple more, you know, it, it well, this year we concentrated on, on four of the varieties, uh, Convertermaner, Pinot Grigio, uh, Chancellor, and Fidel Blanc. So uh, we got a, a pretty decent crop of those that we're going to harvest off uh, North Bass. So so um, uh, Tyler, our engineer, has just started making some wine. And um, if... if Tyler, what have you found to be the most challenging part of making wine? Like what stymied you the most or became the, because it's, it's not easy, I don't think. Well, first of all, this is a very experimental project uh, and I cannot claim any sort of deep uh, family, you know, tradition. I have no training, but uh, the truth is I noticed uh, along with my girlfriend, that there were these wild grapes growing everywhere ar around here in Austin, Texas, where I'm located. And uh, we kind of waited for them to get really ripe. We would taste them on our Saturday walks. And then finally, when they reached peak ripeness, we, uh, we harvested seven pounds and uh, mashed them up and uh, added a little sugar and did it a ferment. As I speak, it's in a uh, one-gallon jug fermenting. Helen, I don't know. It might be too early for me to to really comment. I, I but I'll tell you, it's the juice. I'll tell you what really shocked me is just how good the juice is. It was good immediately. Like we, I, I kind of. It's really a discipline-making one. I could just drink the juice. Yeah, I can. I can imagine. So I think it, this kind of is a great segue to talk about the wine. Um, Lori, for a number of years, I think you had a, a um, radio show where you sampled wine on the radio. And how did you select it? And how do you, how, you know, how, I guess I'm kind of going to get around to all of you. And if you were going to start with Great Lakes Wines, which one would you choose? How would you direct somebody? Lori, when you, if you had, if someone came up to you and said, I know nothing about Great Lakes Wines, what should I try first? What would you suggest when you look at the Great Lakes Wide? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the biggest thing that I say is to be really open-minded. And even though I said that for years, I even caught myself a couple of times not being open-minded. Um, for example, in, you know, in, in, on Leelanau Peninsula, where I'm from, in northern Michigan, uh, we, we do Pinot Noirs really well. And, um, we, or, and, and rosés as well. A lot, of, a lot of rosés are produced from Pinot Noir. And I just remember coming up and, and having a winemaker say, oh, you have to try my rosé. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't drink that stuff, you know, um, because I had no idea. So we produce it more like the French, like a dry, you know, you know or dry rosé. And, um, you know, in my head, I was thinking, you know, not my grandma's rosé, that sweet stuff that you say, that pink sweet stuff that used to sit around and you sneak sips of. Um, so the big thing, I think, is more to be open minded. And, and it's the same with like Riesling. Um you know, that, it's, that it can be, it's so versatile, it can be sweet to dry. And um, the other thing too, is I've never liked Chardonnay. And then I learned that um, like most California Chardonnays are very heavily oaked. I don't know if that's still the case now, but in the past, and it's the oak I don't like, and I had, I had no idea. So um, in Michigan, we're producing a lot of steel fermented Chardonnays and they're amazing. Like you can taste the grape and the flavor. So the biggest thing for me is to be, is, 
you know, telling people to be open-minded. Um, and the other thing I tell people too, is that, um, you know, chuck, chuck the rules and, and drink what you like, you know, you think there, there's so many experts out there and they have, you know, this and that, and, you know, but no one is more of an expert than your own palate. You know, you know what you like, you know what you don't like, but you really can't figure it out unless you taste them all. I mean, just keep tasting. Even, even if you, you know, a lot of people will go into the tasting room and they're like, oh, I like Pinot Grigio. So they taste those. Um, I do the opposite. I go in and taste something I wouldn't normally drink. And I think that's just opened my eyes to a lot of a lot of different wines and different flavors. And now I feel like I can move all over the spectrum with wines. And it sounds like <clears throat> with all the you know, hundreds of wineries um, around the Great Lakes, uh, and a lot of those wineries have tasting rooms, that as you're taking your circle tour around the Great Lakes, which we talked about at the last podcast, really make a point of uh, trying to get to those tasting rooms and check out the wines. Um, Ed and Dustin, what's your most popular wine? Our Pink Catawba, by far. Pink Catawba. So what is it about Pink Catawba that appeals to people? Um, well, it, it tastes good, but it's also, you know, it's a good starter wine, I think. You can kind of figure out if you want to go sweeter or if you want to go drier. It's kind of a, kind of a fun wine to drink, you know. It's semi-sweet, beautiful color, fruity, grapey. Uh, so... It's uh, our number one seller, but uh, yeah, people are. I think the we we get a lot of uh, people at our winery that aren't wine drinkers, so you know, beginner, beginning wine drinker, usually like something sweet. And of course, the more you drink wine, the you go farther down the scale towards dry. But on our tours, you know, we tell, you know, you might want to start somewhere in the middle, you know, like um, our Island Chablis. That's kind of right in the middle between sweet and dry. And uh, if you want to go, yeah, our Riesling, yeah, like Lori said, that's a very uh, versatile grape. Uh, You know, you can make it sweet, dry, ice wine out of it if you want. What is ice wine? Well, uh, the traditional make the traditional way to make ice wine is to let the grapes hang on the vine and freeze usually when it gets to be about 17 degrees i know in north bass uh sometimes it was november sometimes december sometimes january until they froze and then uh, they had to fly the grapes off the island uh, so you wait for them to freeze, and uh, you go through and pick each berry by by hand. And then when you press frozen grapes, uh, most of the, the w- water in the grape remains in the press as ice. So you get nothing but the very sweet juice out of the berry. If you press a ton of normal grapes, you get anywhere from 150 to 200 gallons per ton, depending on variety. If you press a ton of frozen grapes, like Riesling, Vidal Blanc, those kind of the two main grapes that uh, they make ice wine around here with, uh, well, you get around 30, 35 gallons per ton. But the juice you do get is super sweet, you know. But, but how is it that you can have that grape stay on the vine and not rot before it freezes? Well, the, the grapes are kind of uh, thick-skinned and uh, kind of tough grapes and uh, usually uh, you have to put bird netting over the top of them to protect them from the birds. You know, that's where ice wine... Uh, that's where it was invented in Germany, I guess. Some, some German grape grower forgot to pick a, a vineyard of Riesling, and uh, he went back there and was like, oh, my God, I, I forgot to pick these, and they were, they were frozen solid. And he didn't want them to go to waste, so he pressed them frozen, and that's the way the, the story goes. Oh, ice wine came about, and then Canada got big with it, and... And it kind of filtered down to Michigan, Ohio, you know, down to uh, the northern states. 
Well, you talked about Canada, and we can't forget that Canada has a lot of wineries around the Great Lakes themselves. You get off into um, towards the uh, the east part of the Great Lakes and the Niagara Escarpment. Um, also, you know, kind of has that whole weather pattern uh, that also extends the growing season. So um, let's talk about more of the sophisticated wines. Um, and if someone came to your winery and had a sophisticated palate, uh, let's say they're a wine snob from California. Um, not that there's any snobs in California, but let's say they <laughs> know a lot about wine. What would you offer them? I mean, let's say I, I want a dry red wine. What would you offer them? Well, uh, what we have available right now, I would say, are uh, Cedar Woods Red, which is a proprietary name for for uh, the Chamberson grape, which is a hybrid. So a very dark, heavy red, grapey, uh, very uh, hearty, easy to drink wine, uh, or or Cabernet Franc, which is a little less bodied wine, and uh, another red that's real easy to drink. I would say those two, and then uh, like Lori was talking about, uh, our Chardonnay. The Chardonnay is probably my favorite dry white we have right now because uh, we have no oak in it. You know, All of our wines are all fruit forward. That's what we, we look for, the fruit, the flavor. In the grape, you know, we don't like to taste oak either. Uh, so we've been making, uh, you know, stainless steel fermented Chardonnay for a long time. And we have a, a real good batch of uh, Chardonnay right now, unoaked, or, you know, they call it naked Chardonnay, no oak in it. So that's what, when I give a tour, I tell them, you know, people, that's my favorite dry white right now. And, so if they wanted to taste a nice Chardonnay, you know, like they, you know, the number one white wine grape in the world, Chardonnay, they can try our Chardonnay. So you compete, um, you know, nationally, internationally with your wines. Uh, Lori, you were saying that, you know, a lot of uh, great, great Lakes wines win a lot of awards. But Heinemann's, tell me um, how you compete. How does one show your grape? How do you show it off and show your off your wine? Um which proves that you guys can match anybody out there. Well, we haven't entered too many competitions recently because of COVID. They haven't had them because of the COVID situation the last couple of years. Uh, but we've we've done we've always done very good in wine competitions. You know, sweet, dry, mediums. But who are you competing against? Um, uh, other states, other countries? How does that How does that work in the business? Yeah, there's an Ohio wine competition, which of course is just Ohio wineries, and then there's also the Great American Wine Competition, I think, which is in New York, and that's an international wine competition. So it's not just wines entered from, you know, the United States. There's other wines from other countries there as well. And you know, we usually we enter anywhere between 10 to 14 of our wines. It also depends on how many we have at the time. But almost all of the wines we enter win an award, you know, almost every year that we enter. And we have not entered since 2019, right? Yeah, and, and that's understandable. But I, I just want to highlight to our listeners that, you know, these wines are compete internationally, nationally. Um, they, um, but they're, as you said, fruit forward. I love that term. Um, I love that that term because um, there's something so fresh and nice about the grape. Uh, kind of tells you about the grape and how it was grown. And uh, I cannot emphasize enough to our listeners that they should check it out. And um, Lori, um, is there? Do you know if there's a central place that people could? you know, a directory of wineries for the Great Lakes? Or how would you recommend someone kind of just find a winery um, that they might uh, feel attached to? No, there's not necessarily for the Great Lakes yet. I think that's a great idea. Not to say it's something I haven't been thinking about. Because um, at this point, you know, the states are are a little separate. Um, and actually, Ohio has great, I mean, they have great people down there that are doing some amazing things. Um, and, 
you know, with easily to find their trails, easy to find, you know, just very proactive um, people that are involved in that. And in Michigan, the there was a site, uh, it's still there, it's a Michigan craft beverage. It used to be wines, but it, it moved into uh, beers and distilled products as well. So that's still a place that you can find all of them. But I think the bigger thing is finding what part of where you're going and finding that region, whether it's Traverse City or, you know, or in Ohio, Ohio, which by the way, Ed and Dustin, I, I totally want to come see your winery now. I'm so intrigued. Um, but I think that, you know, just finding the region that you're going to and finding the wine. I mean, there's wineries everywhere in the country at this point, and uh, you can always find a region nearby and it's fun to explore. And, uh, but I do think there's a need for a Great Lakes directory. So I think that's a great idea. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm guessing that uh, Heinemann's Winery is on TripAdvisor.com. You know, so if you're, if you're heading out to anywhere in the Great Lakes and want to find a winery, I highly recommend it because it, it's a unique experience. The wines are, are pretty special and you can ask your vintner, you know, what might appeal to you. Um, what is your favorite wine, Ed? And what's your favorite wine, Dustin? Um, well, my, my personal favorite is the Niagara, which, of course, is a native. Um, it's a white wine it's uh classified as a medium sweet and i i just love that you know it tastes like you're eating a grape right off the vine it's a very fruity wine um it just tastes like you're eating the grape that's that's my personal favorite yeah how about you ed well kind of a loaded question there but uh, (laughs) all of them you like them all but uh yeah i've been given a lot of winery tours uh, this year and plus I'm the winemaker you know we're short on help just like everybody else is trying to make wine and give them tours and bartend and everything else but I get that question all the time and I say I'd like them all because I'm the winemaker I I make them all but uh, if I uh, at the end of the tour we have all our wines there and we describe them and I usually say, well, what kind of wine do you like? You know, then I'll tell them what I, I think is the best. And, but if I'm drinking a, a dry white, I'd be the Chardonnay right now, you know, the naked Chardonnay. And uh, the red would probably be our Cabernet Franc. Uh, our s- sweeter wines, probably, uh, oh, Sweet Catawba that we just bottled recently, sweet white wine. Uh if it was a medium wine, I'd say the the Island Chablis, which is a, a blend of two grapes. But uh, you know, it's top secret. If you come on the tour, I'll tell you. But that, that's a deal. But I'm gonna I'm gonna give a shout out to Niagara also. Um, Niagara, Dustin, you said it right. It's like having it right off the vine. It is such a special flavor. It's not like any other wine I've ever had. I kind of think of it as an afternoon sipping wine, but it's certainly much more than that. Um, it's just, uh, it's it's unique. It's light, flavorful. Um, gosh, it's good chilled. I, I'm going to have to go with Niagara only because it is so special. And it's a, it's a native grape. Um, it's particular to the Great Lakes. Um, so that's my vote. But I love this idea of a naked Chardonnay. So, folks, if you're not into oak, I suggest you you, you look up the uh, these uh, uh, Chardonnays in the Great Lakes. Well, I, I I there's so much more and we could talk about today, but I want to thank you both. Um, thank you, Dustin. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Lori, for being with us today. Um, it's uh, I've learned. I mean, you didn't see me, but my eyes kept getting wide. Like, wow, I didn't know that. So we learned a lot. So I, I recommend to our listeners. Um, any, any time you're in the Great Lakes, uh, taking your tour, check out wines and the wineries. Um, you'll enjoy it. Actually, for, for if people are looking for Ohio wineries, I suggest they go to ohiowines.org. That is for the Ohio Wine Producers Association. Um, they, they are a great organization for, you know, Ohio wineries. They do a lot, you know, and, and. Back in 1970, when or 70s, somewhere around there, there was only 13 wineries in Ohio. We were one of them. And flash forward to the year 2021, there is at least 340 licensed wineries in Ohio. That's crazy. Yeah, I think I think Ohio is the most wineries of any Great Lakes state. 
pretty, pretty incredible. So ohiowine.org. Thank you for that. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting North Coast Chronicles. I'd love to hear from our listeners. So send me your thoughts and ideas for future podcasts to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. And you can check out all of the podcasts on the American Shoreline Podcast Network at Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods, all for free. The views of this podcast are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Be sure to join me for our podcast next month called Climate Change and the Lake They Call Gichigumi with Dr. Jay Austin from the University of Wisconsin. Until next time, be good to each other. Bye-bye.